Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Tuesday, March 4th, 2008, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today, we will be discussing a new set of guidelines published in the March 2008 issue of Critical Care Medicines. The title is Recommendations for End-of-Life Care in the Intensive Care Unit, a Consensus Statement by the American Academy of Critical Care Medicine. Joining us today is lead author Robert D. Trug, MD, MA, Professor of Medical Ethics and Anesthesia, Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine at Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. The reference for this particular article is Critical Care Medicine, March 2008, Volume 36, Issue 3, page 953 to 963. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us again on the iCritical Care podcast. Great. Thank you, Richard. Um, This is uh, not our usual article in terms of going over a set of guidelines. We're going to try and keep it to our usual 20 minutes. Um, and again, as you even point out in this particular article, it's it's difficult to call it sort of an evidence-based approach, rather more of a consensus-driven approach, but at least giving a set of guidelines or some common uh, piece of paper for the practicing critical care clinician to look at. Um, before we start going into the specifics or details, uh, was it a, a highly controversial document putting it together? Was it difficult to gain consensus or, or not so much? No, I don't really think so. Um, We had a wonderful group of authors, all of whom are very experienced with end-of-life care in the ICU. And uh, so it was actually a lot of fun to collect the the wisdom of this group and then just try to organize it in the paper. Uh, We did uh, cite evidence wherever we could, and increasingly there is more research being done in this area. But uh, as you noted, um, much of this does come from... um, the long years of experience that many of us have had. There are five major areas uh, in these guidelines that we're going to have a topic uh, that we will have a chance to discuss, and I'm just going to mention them here, and we'll try and spend a couple of minutes on each. First, we focus on the patient and family-centered care and decision-making approach, then uh, ethical principles relating to the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment, practical aspects of withdrawing life-sustaining treatments in the intensive care unit, symptom management in end-of-life care, and finally considerations at time of death. And just starting with the patient and family-centered care, which seems to be a, a major focus of there have, as there have been recent guidelines focusing on patient and family-centered care in the ICU, how it relates specifically to end-of-life care, one of the major areas is this concept of shared decision-making with the family um, and the clinicians, and and I, I guess that might be an interesting place to start when you're talking about what does it really mean to say patient and family-centered care with regards to end-of-life. Sure, Richard. I think um, 
as, as a pediatrician, uh, it seems that so often we are learning from the adult world, but perhaps this is an area where the pediatricians have been able to take the lead a little bit because, uh, of course, much of what we do involves patients who cannot participate in decision-making with us or have a limited capacity to do so. And there's a real analogy here to the ICU where 95% of ICU patients are not able to participate in their care. And so um, it's, a, it's a different world, I think, for many who are trained in adult medicine, but is very familiar to those of us in pediatrics. And uh, you know, to, to engage the, the family as the patient, if you will, I think um, is, a, is a nice direction for critical care to be moving. Um, one of the dilemmas that comes up in adult ICUs that we don't have in pediatric ICUs, though, is situations where a patient may not have any family members or any close friends at all. You know, at least in pediatrics, we almost always have the parents to work with. And uh, so we comment on this because this is one of the more controversial areas right now. Uh, what do you do with, uh, with somebody in the ICU when you really don't have a family member or a friend to work with? And uh, I think practice varies widely. Um, in some cases, the clinical team just makes the decisions that they think are best. Um, we're advocating a little bit more formal approach. Uh, the most formal is to go to court and have a surrogate decision maker appointed by a judge. But we don't think that that's necessarily always the best choice. Um, but hospitals are now developing protocols. And so, for example, involving the ethics committee in decision making like that is one approach that's been advocated. And so we talk a little bit about that uh, in the paper. Another issue that um, comes up within this shared decision-making is, is what happens when you run into a situation of conflict where you can't reach agreement with the family. Um, here again, I think practice has been all over the place uh, for the past 20 years um, from physicians making decisions independently, sometimes without even telling the family, uh, to the other end of the spectrum where uh, basically, you know, you just do whatever the, whatever the uh, family wants. I think neither of those are the, are the right way to go. And so what we've seen over the past 10 years or so is, is hospitals developing process-oriented policies to resolve these disagreements, um, sometimes more towards the views of the clinicians and sometimes more towards the views of the family. And uh, one of the developments recently that I think is going to bear watching is several states have now adopted this kind of approach into legislation. Texas is the, is the most visible. And uh, they have really created a process whereby if clinicians feel that the treatment is futile and shouldn't be provided, that by going through consultation with the hospital ethics committee, they can actually override uh, the wishes of patients and families. And... Um, you know, like I say, this is this is quite controversial. Um, I think it's got some strong points. I think it has some areas of concern, and we'll watch how this develops over the next few years. Well, I just wanted to conclude uh, just making a couple comments on what you said, because this really, uh, as a practicing adult critical care clinician, this can be often some of the more challenging areas where, on the one hand, you know, recent work um, by Dr. Uh, Dr. Curtis and Dr. White focusing on the concept of shared decision-making and supporting families in whatever they may decide. On the other hand, as clinicians, we may 
with reason uh, have opinions that something may be inappropriate if it appears to be prolonging suffering rather than uh, aiming towards a cure. And it doesn't really address, as you just have, this issue where there may be conflict between the opinion, often with great consensus amongst the clinicians about what should be done uh, and the family. And as you pointed out, having a structured process uh, can really allow those issues to be discussed in a, in a calm setting, right? That's right, Richard. One of the next areas that uh, I very much enjoy speaking with you about and that you've talked to me about before is this under ethical principles relating to withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment. And actually, you can combine these if you like, is, is withdrawing versus withholding life support and making distinctions between killing and allowing to die. And if I could ask you, do you ever actually discuss it explicitly where you will say to a family member, I just want to take to a moment to talk to you about some of the ethical principles that we're using here or medically and ethically how we're approaching this? Well, I think the one that we um, do discuss explicitly um, frequently is the withholding-withdrawing distinction. Um, Because, you know, the fact is for all of us, it is more emotionally comfortable to withhold a treatment because it's passive and it feels like the disease is just sort of taking its course, as opposed to withdrawing a treatment like a mechanical ventilator where it feels very active to us and where where the moral responsibility feels much more on our shoulders. And yet, you know, we teach uh, the doctors and nurses we work with, and we also uh, explain to families that it's important um, not to let that distinction carry the day, that in fact um, we need to be able to withdraw treatments because without that, we would not be able to give patients trials of therapy. You know, if we said, gosh, once we put that endotracheal tube in, we're not going to take it out, that would make us very reluctant to, to, to actually go ahead and intubate and, and give patients a trial of mechanical ventilation when it's uncertain whether they're going to respond and turn around. And so, um, you know, I think we, we've come to understand now that much, much better medical care results when you say, okay, we're going, we're going to try this treatment, but we're going to recognize that if it doesn't work, we're going to be willing to take it away and stop it. And if you have that discussion with the family up front ahead of time uh, and build agreement around that, it can uh, head off a lot of problems later on. But then you, you pointed out to me, I think on a previous podcast, that nevertheless it can be psychologically very different. But, but you, your point, I think, in this, especially in putting in the document, is to some extent to have clinicians hold their ground that this is an important point. It really is, Right. That's right, absolutely. And um, uh, while it is controversial in some sense, what I, what I think we wanted to do with these guidelines was to say that actually there is consensus around this, and it needs to guide and direct our practice. You can't just fall back and say, well, that's controversial, so therefore you know, we're not going to take a position on it. This is an area where I think we really do need to take a stand. One of the other areas under ethical principles that you and I spoke about previously was this doctrine of double effect. And I guess the talking points here are sort of what does it mean? What are the implications for critical care clinicians? And I know you and I were going to talk about a recent uh, issue surrounding uh, a transplant case where there were some issues there. We, We thought it was very important to mention double effect in this guidelines document, even though there's nothing new about it. It's, it's been around for a long time. But it, it's, it's so important now because surveys show that end-of-life care is not done as well as it could be and that one of the main problems is that clinicians are reluctant 
to make patients comfortable at the end of life because they're afraid of crossing that line from palliative care to euthanasia. And so we want to teach about double effect because it shows you exactly where that line is and you can deliver excellent palliative care and not be worried about crossing the line. And where the line is is that you can do everything necessary, absolutely anything you need to do in order to make a patient comfortable as long as you are responding to signs of pain or discomfort that the patient is showing you. Um, the, the key word I think that often comes up is titration. You want to be titrating your sedation and analgesia to the patient's level of comfort. And the line comes where once a patient is comfortable, then we don't give any more. And if you keep that in mind as your guiding focus, you'll always be on the right side of this line between palliative care and euthanasia. And the other really important thing to mention is that this isn't just ethics. This is law. And uh, we have, I mean, a, a quote that I love to use uh, frequently comes from the former Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Reinquist, who essentially says that as long as you are titrating your pain medications to the patient's comfort, even if those medications actually hasten death, then your treatment is acceptable. So we've got, you know, we've got legal support for this all the way to the top. Now, I think, you know, we recently have seen, uh, you know, it's been in the Los Angeles uh, newspapers, but now in the New York Times of a transplant surgeon in California who uh, was called in to be a part of the end-of-life care for a gentleman who was a patient there in California. And a uh, complicated story that was um, mixed up with a desire to get organs for transplantation. But he clearly crossed that line. He was just giving more and more sedation to a patient well beyond the point that it was needed. And he's going to face criminal charges for that. Very chilling. And from what I, when I understand in general, though, just to help us understand that, because I know you said you were going to talk about some of the donation after cardiac death issues, my understanding was in general, those two teams are usually kept separate in general, that you have the team that's involved in the declaration and more of an ICU approach, and then when it's official, then the transplant team comes in. I just Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Richard. I mean, there were many ethical violations and legal violations that uh, occurred in this California case. One was disregard for our approaches around double effect in terms of the administration of sedation and analgesia. The other is, is that this transplant surgeon should have had no role whatsoever in this patient's end-of-life care. There's many lessons here that we're going to learn from this case. And unfortunately for, for this, uh, this physician, I think the consequences are going to be harsh. In terms of, just to talk about that again, because it is so important, there needs to be, to, to the extent that there can, can be, right, consensus between the clinician, the, 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 the intensivist, the nurse at the bedside, and the family uh, about that level of discomfort, right? So we've all been in, many of us have been in this situation, you're looking at the patient, they appear to have uncomfortable breathing pattern, and that's something that we often titrate to, and, and that's reasonable, right? That's right. Um, and again, that's that's something that needs to be, I mean, what would your recommendations on that be? Have it written down as a protocol and making sure that everyone, because those are my thoughts when I first heard about this case in California, is, is it's so important to make sure that everybody is understanding what's being done so that there isn't any confusion or controversy once the process gets started, right? Right. I think um, one of the things that I pay a lot of attention to in end-of-life care is 
building and maintaining consensus with everyone who is in the room, with, uh, with the nurses, with the family members. Uh, it's important to be very clear not only in what you write. So, for example, my orders will, will include the word titration to patient pain and suffering, but I will also use those phrases when I'm talking to the nurse and the family. And one rule of thumb that I've come to find very valuable is, you know, you can get into debates about whether something you're seeing with the patient really represents pain or suffering. Uh, you know, so, for example, I've heard people say, well, you know, once they get really hypercarbic, even though they look like they're suffering, they're probably unconscious anyway. You know, I think that that way over-intellectualizes it. And so the rule of thumb that I use is if there is anybody in the room, whether that's one of the physicians, the nurse, or a family member, who thinks that what they are seeing in the patient is pain or suffering, then that is the justification that we need in order to be to, to go ahead and to give and to give more sedation analgesia, so we don't don't over intellectualize it. On the other hand, once that patient reaches a point where everybody in the room thinks they're comfortable, that's where you need to stop. You had a quote uh, from the paper. You had a part of the paper that I wanted to quote because I liked it. And maybe if you want to comment, you wrote: Some have argued that the doctrine of double effect is not necessary since studies suggest that the use of sedatives and analgesia at the end of life does not actually hasten death. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, so, you know, there's a, a now a very strong literature from uh, uh, the palliative care world and especially the hospice experience that when patients are made comfortable at the end of life, they actually live longer, not shorter. There have been some palliative care specialists who have said we don't really need double effect. It's philosophically controversial. Why do you keep talking about it? So I want to acknowledge their point, but I also want to say, uh, you know, for those of us who work in intensive care, there's no doubt that there are times where the drugs that I have administered have actually speeded up a patient's death. Whether it's the majority of the time or not, I don't know, but I definitely know that it happens. And the message that I want to give to ICU doctors and nurses is that that's okay. There's nothing ethically or legally problematic about it as long as it occurs in the context of titrating these medications to the patient's pain and suffering. Uh, that's great. That's really, really great. Um, in the next section, you uh, you and your group focus on practical aspects of withdrawing life-sustaining treatments in the ICU. And, and one of the areas that um, doesn't go, does not come up too often, but when it does can often be complex, when a family recommends, you know, well, n- no pressors, but keep the tube in, and I'd like a few minutes of chest compressions, but not too many, rather than, and I had been taught in, in actually residency, very much kind of uh, to think of it as sort of an all or none, keeping it simple that the concept is heroic resuscitatory efforts or not, rather than I'd like the tube in, but no pressors, or I'd like pressors, but not the tube, that kind of thing. And, and if you have any comments, that would be wonderful. Yes, I think, you know, the, the sort of uh, Chinese menu approach to choosing therapies at the end of life is something that is a problem for all of us at one time or another, where, you know, the family will say, I want chest compressions, but I don't want to be intubated, or um, something like that. And um, I think there's, there's several ways of approaching it. One, the, the, the best way, if you, if, if you can work this out with the family, is to focus on the goals of care rather than the procedures. Sit down with them and say, look, let's, let's, let's not talk about uh, the various procedures for a moment. Let's talk about um, what matters to you about the death of your loved one. What are the things, what are the, the kinds of experiences that you want to have and those you want to avoid? And then let's match the procedures to those goals. If you can get there, I think that works really well. 
But sometimes families will have a particular procedure in mind and they just can't get off of it. You know, whether that is, uh, you know, I want you to use drugs but not cardioversion, for example. You know, we, we take a little bit of a middle-of-the-road approach in the guidelines. We, we try to accommodate families' wishes as much as possible. But when it reaches a point that it really starts to compromise the care of the, of the medicine that we're providing, that's where we need to draw the line. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to say to a family member, you know, this combination of care just doesn't make any sense medically, and we're not going to provide it. One, um, I think, kind of emerging controversy in this regard is the use of non-invasive mechanical ventilation at the end of life. There are those who say it has no role in palliative care, but I think we're seeing it increasingly used. And I think there is nothing wrong with a patient saying, I don't want to be intubated, but I would like you know, non-invasive ventilation. I think that, that that can be a reasonable choice. The problem is, is when it stops being effective, you're now stuck with having to withdraw that in very much the same way that you would have to withdraw mechanical ventilation through an endotracheal tube, and, uh, and, and that can be difficult as well. So, you know, I think, I, I think that, it, that is maybe an area where more data over the next few years is going to give us more guidance. One of the uh, other points we're sort of heading towards the end here that, that you've mentioned in the past that I think you should just take a couple minutes on again is the role of paralytics and muscle relaxants and really emphasizing again um, their role or, or lack thereof. Yes. So in the guidelines, we, we once again laid out some points about the use of muscle relaxants in end-of-life care. This continues to be an issue around the country and otherwise well-meaning physicians who are caring and compassionate people get into situations where because of the emotions of the mo- of the moment or or not thinking clearly they uh give a patient a paralytic agent that stops their breathing and that you know in most cases the family and and everyone thinks that the death looked like it was perfectly comfortable but somebody who was present often a nurse will say gee that's not that doesn't seem appropriate to me, will report the physician, and they end up being in an awful lot of trouble, um, not only with perhaps losing their license, but actually with criminal charges. And so we, we again, reemphasize here that uh, for patients who have not been receiving paralytic agents, they have absolutely no role in end-of-life care. You can achieve all of the goals that you want to achieve with the standard sedatives and analgesics that we use. We do bracket off uh, a small category of patients, um, those who are getting paralytic agents as part of um, their therapy in order to be able to tolerate the ventilator. And so, you know, uh, for example, in the ARDSNET trials, about 40% of the patients were paralyzed. And the question becomes, what do you do when you decide that that patient is not going to survive, you're going to withdraw the ventilator? What do you do with the fact that they're already paralyzed? And the position we take that if, if possible, the best thing to do is to let the neuromuscular uh, blocking agent wear off primarily so that as you're withdrawing uh, life support, you're able to to see if the patient is comfortable or not, because obviously, you know, those behavioral clues are blocked if the patient is paralyzed. But we do recognize that in some cases that's not going to be practical, that as, as as the paralytic agent wears off, the patient begins to fight against the ventilator. It may be difficult to get on top of that. And so we don't absolutely rule out withdrawal of mechanical ventilation from a patient who's paralyzed. 
That's sort of at the more controversial end. That is the position we take in the guidelines. But the bigger point that I want to make sure everybody understands is that for the majority of patients who are not getting these these agents for therapeutic reasons, uh, they should not be used in their end-of-life care. From, from my personal perspective, I think one of the most important things you've told me today is this concept that there can be shared decision-making as long as there's a process that allows there to be a way to handle conflict. But I was wondering if, if you wanted to make any final comments either on uh, research, quality improvement, education, future areas that you think really need emphasis in end of life or any sort of concluding comments today. One of the wonderful things about working on this article was that um, uh, several of my co-authors uh, are very involved in research and quality improvement strategies around end-of-life care. Um, and this is an area where we are starting to make some uh, headway. Dr. Randy Curtis, uh, in particular, I think, has been um, one of the, the, the leaders internationally in this area. And he, he educated all of us, I think, about the difficulties of finding good outcome measures for end-of-life care. And, you know, one that gets used a lot, for example, is length of stay. And the idea being that if you can decrease a patient's length of stay without increasing the overall mortality in the unit, that you've probably done a good thing because you have um, shortened the dying process. And while this has been used in a number of outcome studies, you know, you don't have to think about it too long to realize that it could be problematic, that you could reduce length of stay to the, to the extent that families are feeling pressured to make decisions too rapidly, and that actually the quality of that end-of-life care gets worse, not better. And so um, we've come up now, or starting to come up with, with really more nuanced, more comprehensive measures. And the one that I, th- I would think we're going to be looking for uh, in, the, in the next few years is the, the quality of death and dying tool that uh, Randy Curtis and his group in Seattle uh, have developed, and I think it's being used more extensively now. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an outstanding way to look at how a variety of different interventions uh, might impact the quality of end-of-life care and allow us to be able to say in a more evidence-based way, what are the things that work and what are the things that don't? We have been speaking today with Dr. Robert Trug, a professor at Harvard Medical School and a well-known leader in the field of end-of-life care in the intensive care unit. And we were discussing the guidelines, of which he was the lead author, recommendations for end-of-life care in the intensive care unit. Thank you so much, Dr. Trug, for spending a little bit of time with us today on the podcast. Thank you, Richard. It was really a pleasure. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, March 4th, 2008. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. From commercial jets to gourmet coffee to grunge rock, Seattle, Washington is home to numerous world-changing events. Be a part of the next best thing to come out of Seattle 
attend SCCM's new conference, Mechanical Ventilation, Trends in Adult and Pediatric Practice, to be held from June 19th to 21st, 2008. This comprehensive program will offer interactive panel presentations and small group breakout sessions during three morning educational sessions. Through evidence-based information, you will obtain the latest quantitative and qualitative data to maximize patient outcomes. For more information, visit www.sccm.org or ask to speak with a customer service representative.